is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. And I'm Ryan Sperry, also Professor of Sociology at Queens College from the City University of New York. Today we sit down with Hannah Wall from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Hannah is the author of Bound by Creativity, How Contemporary Art is Created and Judged with the University of Chicago Press. We're going to talk about art worlds, the production of culture, and a whole lot more in the world of art. You're not going to want to miss this. Our interview was recorded on November 5th, 2021. We are here with Hannah Wall from UC Santa Barbara. It's nice to meet you, Hannah. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And also in the co-hosting seat today, we got Ryan Sperry from here at Queens College. Great to see you again, Ryan. It's good to be here. Thanks. And today we have a very interesting topic. We're sitting down with Hannah Wall, who's a sociologist of culture. All right, maybe I won't I'll, I, I won't pigeonhole you, Hannah. I'll let you introduce yourself for a second. But Hannah has written an excellent book on the creative process in the visual arts or sculpting. I'll let her describe it. But it was a terrific read and a very insightful book. And I'm really happy to have her on. So thank you very much for joining us, Hannah. It's really great to have you here. It's great to be here. So first of all, a lot of our listeners are not connected to the social culture, you know, don't know that corner of the discipline. So could you start off maybe by introducing us to you? Who are you? What's your background? Who are your big teachers and influences? And what are your specialties? Yeah, so um, as you've, you've already said, my name is Hannah Wall. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And I did my PhD in sociology at Northwestern. Uh, so I was always like growing up really interested in art and the project sort of got started because I did my master's thesis on a very different visual art world, which was a sensual figure drawing class at an erotic arts club, which is like, okay, what is that thing? And so basically this was a place where they were erotic artists that were interested in sensual, but not pornographic artwork. And so I was really interested in these boundaries of what was non-sexual, what was sexual, what was sensual, as well as how people were making aesthetic and moral judgments in this space. So that was my first sort of foray into the art world, which I got interested in and got into because I was taking an ethnography class where we had to follow a small group. And I decided to try to unite my hobby and my homework at the same time and kill two birds with one stone there. And then it turned into my master's. I got to the end of that and I was left with some open questions. So this was a a world where people were not trying to be sort of avant-garde. They were trying to represent the figure. And so there wasn't the same uncertainty around aesthetic judgment as there was in the contemporary art world, which was something I was also acquainted with. And I was not really as much focused on the production process. I was more focused on how they made judgments after they made their work. So I really wanted to focus on the process of experimentation in a world where there was really not a consensus around aesthetic judgment and ask how do artists make aesthetic decisions in order to produce their work, right? Otherwise, they would just be paralyzed with this absence of consensus around what constitutes aesthetic judgment. So that was what brought me to the contemporary art world. 
And I'd say one of my major influences was my dissertation advisor, who was Gary Fine. And he's really a leading figure in the sociology of art. And he also does ethnography and specifically focused on ethnographies of small groups. So at the same time, he was writing this book on MFA programs for contemporary art. And so it was really wonderful to have that sort of synergy. Very nice pedigree to have. I got to tell you, I really enjoyed your book. You know, there's great conceptual exposition and development, like I enjoyed it as a sociologist. But I also got to tell you, you're one heck of a storyteller. It's a great read. And, you know, you're one of those sociologists who can really spin a good yarn. So I really enjoyed reading your book and I definitely recommend it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was something, you know, the writing process, I think, was a a learning curve because I was interested in writing as an undergrad and then and tried to have sort of a more literary voice and then felt like through the process of grad school that was sort of like pounded out of me in the process of like learning to write academic articles, which has like a really tight word count that doesn't leave a lot of room for literary flair. And then wrote this dissertation that then, you know, I had to turn into a book and had to sort of revive all of that sort of knowledge and skills and actually read a lot of fiction to try to get in that mindset of good writing, I guess. And yeah, I guess if, if there's grad students listening to this, one tip I have is to try to write your dissertation as a book instead of as a dissertation. So one th- like things I did was trying to write in that literary style as a dissertation, like not having a full lit review chapter, things like that were all, I did extensive revising, basically like wrote the whole thing over anyway, but made that process not longer than it already had to be. Let's jump into the book. Uh, why don't you start off by just giving us a summary of the book and the big findings that, that you got in the process? Yeah, so I ended up focusing on this idea of creative visions. And this wasn't something I went in knowing I was going to focus on, but I started interviewing artists and realizing they were talking about consistency in their body of work as something that was really important to them and didn't pay that much attention to that insight until I started interviewing dealers and collectors about how they were choosing artists. And they started also talking about consistency as the mark of a mature artist, but also needing to see this variation. Gradually, I started coalescing around this idea of creative visions as something that was really a central orienting feature for aesthetic judgment in the art world. Like this was something that really anchored aesthetic judgment in this world where there was like otherwise a lack of consensus around what was good art. And so this idea of creative visions was this The way I define it is that a creative vision is a bundle of elements that are core and enduring in a body of work. And I focus on both formal elements like media and technique, as well as conceptual elements like ideas or themes. And I talk about how people, different people have different perceptions of creative vision. So signature styles might be a term we usually use to discuss that, which is often used pejoratively. I talk about this in terms of creative visions where each artist has a creative vision, but also to my surprise, actually, dealers and collectors were also talking about their own visions. And I grappled for a long time about whether that was the same thing. And of course, they're not going through the same process of production, but they're still in their minds assembling a body of work, whether it's a a gallery program or a collection 
that they view as having these consistencies, these sort of loose coots consistencies that hold them together and that represent their own aesthetic commitment. So in that way, like they have their own creative visions and when they were selecting artists work, they were trying to find creative visions of artists that were relevant to their creative visions as dealers or collectors. So I look at how these creative visions evolve through the process of experimentation and how artists repeat certain elements that they find as potentially relevant to their creative vision, but also new and exciting. And they repeat them to understand how these elements are going to react to different variables, like varying the thickness of leather as one example. And then as they do that, they develop a series and they show these series in galleries. And these series involve consistencies that could be more narrow or more broad consistencies. And they recognize those consistencies as part of their creative vision. And when other people see the work, they're also communicating to them that these are core parts of their creative vision and other people recognize them as well um, as, as part of their creative vision. So through the process of experimentation, they repeat certain elements to understand how it works. So they're not just starting from scratch. They're sort of developing what I call creative competencies and then recognizing those as core elements of their creative vision, which then sort of moves them to maintain these elements in future series and future works while also introducing new elements so that the creative vision is not static. So yeah, I, yeah sorry, I'll, I'll leave that on there. Yeah, you know, it was interesting because when I was reading your account, I, uh, first on, on the creative vision, from the outside, it looks a lot like brand management and just mm -hmm. developing sort of a reputation for a style or a product that the marketplace comes to expect. In terms of creative vision, am I understanding it right? It's a combination of consistent features that appear across one's creative activity, but it's also the brand or the general recognition or reputation of a, a creator for delivering that type of product. Is that? Yeah. So, so it's, I think similar, like, I think there's certain ways that we think of a brand that are different in, in the art world. Brand is a very, very dirty I'm word. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so to tell someone there, to say someone's branded their work is basically calling them a sellout. Some, similarly, signature style can also be like, oh, they, they have a signature. Some people use that as a positive. Other people say it as basically a brand. So I definitely would not use that term right. with artists. And, you know, the, I think I, I have sort of delved into the brand literature. And I think what brands don't capture so well is that need to maintain both a little bit is discussed, but not so much this need to maintain consistency and variation. There's not as much desired for continued experimentation that is sort of within that literature. And I think another thing sort of missing from that literature is how the idea of this sort of self-concept is emergent through the process of experimentation versus something that's sort of demanded by the consumer. And they're just like meeting this demand that they've sort of decided on in advance. And so that was something that I really wanted to show that artists didn't decide on a creative vision before and then execute it. Right. They really discovered it through the process of experimentation. However, you know, it, it was interesting, this experimentation process. I mean, it, it looks a lot like A-B testing that you'd see on like a user interface development or something. And that's what I love. You took something where when you think of art, you think of somebody, some crazy person just thinking up a random idea from their crazy mind and bringing it to life. 
but you really offer a great production of culture perspective where we see people methodically refining products as they do any other product, managing the reputation as they do. So I, I, I'm sure like the parallels aren't precisely there, but boy, were there a lot of parallels and a really nice production of culture story in there. I think of it more as you could say A-B testing, like that's definitely a corollary. As a social scientist, I guess I was thinking more of like, oh, this is from a science background, a simple experiment where you're maintaining some variables and yeah. varying others <laughs> and like you have your almost control. And that was really interesting to me because we don't think of artists as operating in that way. And in terms of the production of culture. Right perspective, what I wanted to bring together was to say, I think I wanted to bring materiality into the culture of production perspective and say, here are materials constrain and afford certain possibilities within the process of experimentation. And so in the ways that materials react, the sort of variations that materials allow for the unexpected things that happen with materials in the process all shape how artists come to think of their creative vision and how other people come to think of their creative vision. So I wanted to bring those two bodies of literature together. To come back to what you were saying before, how much of this creative process is related to conventions and styles? You talk about this creativity process and it makes me wonder how much of the success of an artist can be linked to their position in history related to other artists, right? Are they bringing in subtle nods to other artists that makes them successful? And do agents and galleries look for this type of thing too? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think the evolution of art history is really important here because the answer to this question is actually part of the reason why creative visions were so sort of prominent and, and sort of salient in this world. So over time, basically in the contemporary art world, because of how art history has evolved, we've had a declining emphasis on genre or movement and an increased emphasis on sort of the individual creative vision. And we can trace this to the start of modern art with Impressionism, where we placed, sort of started thinking about art as something that was about like evoking emotions and ideas versus just representation. And there was this movement of artists that uh, where the artists were now known for sort of like their really distinctive qualities. We had with that the rise of the dealer system versus artist academies where artists were just like learning to training to like copy their masters. And now instead of selling individual canvases, we're selling bodies of work. And so White and White have this famous book, Canvases and Careers, on this idea. And then sort of accompanying this, we have then a really like fast succession of art movements, which are about breaking different boundaries of what we can see as art. And when we get to minimalism, we've broken now all the boundaries, like art can now be just like a blank piece of paper, it can be nothing. So there's no more boundaries to breach. And this is where sort of the boundary of the avant-garde becomes unclear. So now we have this cacophony of styles. It's not clear which is more avant-garde than the other because art can be anything. And now people are just sort of drawing from a hodgepodge of, of references. And so now contemporary artists do talk about movements and artists, but they sort of loosely gesture to them as quote unquote references rather than squarely situating themselves in a movement. And collectors aren't collectors of particular movements so much. Dealers aren't representing a movement in their gallery. And it's just not so important. And so creative visions became much more important. Having something that 
people saw as distinctive and original because that's all you could have when there's no more avant-garde. And so people feel connected to each other, but on sort of certain axes of their creative vision that connect like, okay, you also talk about domesticity and I talk about domesticity and we can be in a group show together, but we're not in this movement of domesticity together. My sense from your book is that the projection of identity is part of what the artist is selling, or it's part of the package. And that there's a lot of identity management and development that the artist and the dealer engage in to add value or appeal to a body of work. Can you describe the role of identity work or identity development in this field? Yeah, definitely. So I think identity is important in a couple of respects. One, artists have perceptions of their own identity. They have lived experiences. And because the creative vision is supposed to be this authentic representation of your commitments as an artist, which is also your commitments as a person, the creative vision is supposed to encapsulate potentially certain elements of your identity. So, you know, it's no mistake that female artists might be more interested in themes of like feminism and domesticity on average, even though by no means do all female artists cover these themes. But other people also like view that as more authentic coming from female artists than maybe if a male artist were to do it. And so identity is important in the respect of like social categories, but it's also important in how people see the personality of the artist. So if the creative vision is associated with the artist's identity, which it is, then because of that, people want to know the artist because that's sort of part of what they're buying when they're buying the art. They're not interested. Mm. Sort of major insight is that people aren't interested in discrete artworks. They're not selling discrete artworks. They're not producing discrete artworks. They're producing something that they view as part of a creative vision, which is then affected by everything they did before and their ideas of what they're going to do after. And so similarly, it's it's associated with this identity of the artist and people, collectors want to go to studio visits in part because they want to know oh, what kind of person is this? They believe that gives them more understanding of the creative vision, which allows them to sort of own more when they own the work. It gives the work more value to them. And artists perform certain traits that are associated with having a creative vision. So a true creative vision is associated with both consistency and variation. So you have to, you have, to have these enduring traits in your creative vision that are a sign of your aesthetic obsession, your true commitment, but also you're a sellout if you just make that and make that again and again and again. So you have to also show that you're invested in continuing to explore and pushing the boundaries because that also shows both your creativity and that you're not too market-driven. And so artists show this in their personalities as well. They'll act really eccentric in order to show that they're not a sellout and that they're the type of person who's like a creative genius. I think we've, for a really, really long time, associated eccentricity with creative genius. Yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll really portray to other people that they're obsessed with their ideas, that they've been exploring an idea for decades, that they can't get it out of their mind. And they'll also sort of show that they're economically disinterested. And so eccentricity is a major thing where people perform this in different ways and not everyone has to perform the role of the eccentric, but definitely it's something that I think collectors 
delight in. It's something that dealers will emphasize. So I had one artist who was really good at portraying this role of the eccentric, which I think he sort of authentically bought into as part of his identity. But he was a professor who would try to get free expired food from bodegas. He would bike around in this bright green helmet. He would regularly sort of push the boundaries offending people. There was a New Yorker article about how he forced his students to sleep in cold buildings and shower with hoses to prepare themselves for the life of the artist. And interestingly, like this article <laughs> was sort of like horrifying to me as a professor, like this, this like an abusive relationship. Taylor um, sees this sees this um, article in the New Yorker about how his artist is basically abusing his students, and he forwards this to his entire listserv of of <laughs> Yeah, just wanted to see that. How much of this is driven by like? The logic of, I don't know, trying to titillate the high-end buyers or like how much of this is just a big performance organized around an economic logic that's trying to appeal to the big money bags in this space? So I think I, okay, I'll, I'll say two things. I am generally resistant to very top-down narratives of how this this works. You know, I think as sociologists, we have this tendency to be like, oh, this is the collectors demanding this. And now artists are just doing whatever the collectors demand so right. that they can make money and anything authentic is actually a sham. And I think it's more complicated than that because yes, artists are interacting with dealers and collectors. They are experiencing what is in demand from them. But they are also communicating to these dealers and collectors. And the ways that they do that are also shaping how collectors and dealers are thinking. So for example, dealers are exposed to the creative process through going to artist studios, like really like talking to artists and understanding their process. And that shapes how they work. Like they understand that artists go through ebbs and flows in the creative process. They have really flexible exhibition schedules around this. They say you can't just like schedule the same artists all on the same schedule because everyone has their really individual trajectory. And the artists are also circulating these same narratives of creativity to dealers and collectors. Dealers are training collectors about how to think. So I think it goes both top down and bottom up where when a collector goes into an artist studio, yes, that's somewhat of a stage, but artists are also trying to teach them, this is my creative vision. This is what it means to have a creative vision. This is what artistic practice is. And through that exposure over time, collectors do become oriented in a way that's shaped by artists as well. So I'll say I think there's less of a top down and more of like a interactional soup going on. And then the second thing I'll say is somewhat of, of uh, tension with the first thing I'll say that I do think there's important power dynamics here. Dealers or collectors really wanted to get to know artists personally and artists felt really uncomfortable usually with these interactions because A, this was a really different social world for them. But B, they relied really heavily on these collectors. So like a collector might just like want to pop by a studio, but for an artist, that's a really stressful thing. That's like a sale can mean the difference between a successful year and an unsuccessful year. So these were really charged with power dynamics. And one thing that was really interesting to me was that there wasn't an equal awareness of these power dynamics. So 
collectors wanted artists to come to their parties. They wanted to get to know the art, artists in part to get them to know the creative vision, but also because it allowed them to sort of dabble in this like bohemian environment. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, they would have these catered really expensive parties in their penthouses where they would invite artists that were several decades younger than them who would show up in like jeans with a backpack and they would get to like schmooze with them. And that was like fun and intellectual and like bohemian for them. And so they described this, their relationships with artists as fun and leisure. Hmm. And artists, while they sometimes liked certain collectors that they got to know, they always described these relationships as first and foremost work. And collectors had very little understanding that this was something that artists were uncomfortable with, that artists were seeing this as stressful part of their work. And only one collector I interviewed said that she tried to sort of hold back with artists because she understood the power dynamics and didn't want to make them uncomfortable. And this was by far the lowest status collector that I interviewed. Huh. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. You know, there's probably a lot to be in a, in a lot of spaces, the audience and the creator. There's just, it's a, a strange relationship where sometimes there's attachment on one side and, and not on the other. I mean, professors very much experience this in their work as well, right? With students. Uh, right. Did you have something? Yeah, I was going to ask. So how much do you think this market is driven by that dynamic of the artist being able to convey a certain type of personality or certain type of background because if a lot of this is being bought by people that kind of gain status from hanging out with artists maybe that's a bigger part of it than than the art itself in some cases yeah so i think you know it, it's both and i don't i try to sort of walk this fine line as a sociologist where i try to analyze how like power and status matters sure. without saying it's the only thing happening here. Because I think that's really mm -hmm. easy to do because that's the thing that's sort of sometimes the thing you can most identify as this hard thing. And so, yeah, status is absolutely important in this world. These social networks, extremely important. These social networks start in MFA programs which are extremely expensive. And therefore there's like a lot of class issues there of who can access these programs, but that's where artists gain their, their professional network and start to gain sort of also a conception of what their creative vision is about. And then they continue on in the art world where artists do sort of when they're starting out, usually contingent labor for other artists and galleries, they expand their network this way. They start off with group shows and gradually move to solo shows. And, and you know, they're, they're going to exhibition openings. They're constantly trying to sort of network with artists and dealers. A lot of the, at least early on in their career, their network with other artists, especially higher status artists is really important because dealers and curators are often asking artists for recommendations to other artists, mm -hmm. seeing artists as more sort of the on the ground people that are in the know that are in these networks of peers. So they sort of see them as having a specialized access to, to sort of up and coming artists that, that are not yet visible to them. So status is really important that way. And then, you know, this entire world, because there is this uncertainty around aesthetic judgment, the only way that people can be confident that their aesthetic judgment is right, that this really is quote unquote good art is if they see that other people who they view as credible 
and legitimate have also evaluated it in this way. So you go to a museum, let's say, and you see something on a wall and you're like, I have no idea why this canvas with a stripe through it is priceless work. But you know, this curator who studied for decades says it is. So she knows more than I do. So I guess I believe it. So museums have status, galleries have status. There's a status hierarchy among galleries and collectors have a status hierarchy among themselves. And that's all very important to protect. So artists need to align themselves with high status people in order to maintain their status. And if they get connected with a low status person, let's say a collector who's not reputable, then that can tarnish their whole, their, their whole body of work with, through just the association. Status is something that's really contaminating. So uh, a lot of what dealers do is protect artist statuses by trying to link them to only high status entities and try to keep them from being linked to low status entities. Right. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking that sounds like sociology. did you find let me ask you this what were the parallels that you saw between the art world and the world that we run in in terms of writing and the academy yeah i mean i think there's a lot of um a lot of parallels so i'd say parallels in both the process of experimentation as well as in the way we try to circulate and communicate our body of work so just like artists have individual artworks that they link together in like series and in this larger body of work. We have individual articles, presentations, books that are linked together in what we think of as our creative vision. So it's not just when we produce something, we don't just see it as like a one-off. We see it as part of this larger body of work and it has to be coherent with that larger body of work while also not being repetitive of something that we've done before. So we're trying to manage the same issue of how do we keep over like a 40 year career, it's really hard to string together articles and books where each one is distinctive, but also people would say that, see that and be like, oh yeah, that's something Hannah would do. If I just started doing medical sociology, like that might raise some eyebrows because people would be like, well, first of all, you don't have the requisite training, but also now I'm calling to question how I see your whole body of work because I thought this was your creative vision and now this is something totally outside it. So what are you about as a scholar? I don't understand anymore. And so that's, I think, one thing that we also have to manage. I think times you see this is when people are on the job market and when they try to write that cover letter that sort of encompasses and ties together a whole CV into a coherent narrative. They give a job talk that says like, this is this project and this is how it this project epitomizes who I am as a a researcher more broadly, and this is who you're going to get in the future. So that's really important. You know, I think the process of experimentation actually looks like pretty similar as well. Like, I don't, I don't know how other people write so much, but I know low stakes experimentation is something that's really important in how I write. So I will like start off with a sticky note or I'll, I'll scribble something on my iPhone if I just have a little idea. And if I think it's worth exploring more, I might put it into a Word doc memo and then might start pulling quotes. And gradually this builds up into a chapter and then more chapters in a book. But I can't just sit down and be like, I'm going to write a book. I can only start if I can reduce the resource cost in terms of my time and make it feel really low stakes. And this is exactly how artists work. So they say, you know, to 
prep a canvas for two days and spend like hundreds of dollars on it. Canvases are really expensive. Um, and then be like, I'm going to make something on this. That would just be totally paralyzing. So I have to build up a bunch of sketches first and just feel like I can scribble something ugly on this page and it's fine and it doesn't matter. And then I slowly build up by maybe making a more detailed sketch and then maybe prepping. So, so they work, I think the same way we do in terms of writing. There's some real similarities there across creation process for academia and, and the art worlds. I, I guess one thing that we don't have that they have is agents. Maybe that's what we need in the academic world. Yeah, that's true. I mean, but we do have, we do have book editors. We do have journal editors. We, I think we have people that usher us through the process that way. Yeah, I guess it's academia is a little different from like writers outside of the academy in that way, where I think it mirrors the process of intermediaries more because if you're outside the academy, just as a, a fiction or nonfiction writer, I think your book editor press that you have takes on that complete level of importance where your career really is in their hands in a way that is not true in academia because we have this rare, really rare situation where we're not actually getting our salary. We're getting our salary more indirectly from our creative labor. So we get a salary from an institution. And then, thank God, my salary is not coming from royalties. I think that's <laughs> right. the case. <laughs> be some lean, you'd be eating expired food yourself. <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed that dynamic uh, of the artist dealer partnership. It was sort of like an orgs aspect of your art world's analysis. Can you just very briefly describe how that partnership works between the artist and the dealer? What do they do? How do they work together? Yeah, definitely. So, I, they often describe it as a marriage and not all marriages end successfully and, or I guess many marriages end and then it's not successful. So, the, so they, they use that metaphor of a marriage a lot. And I, I think it's because the long-term nature of it and the, the intimacy of it. So these relationships are really non-contractual, which is something really interesting to me. You might hmm. never, you come to these sort of soft understandings with dealers. You don't have these hard contracts binding you for X number of years, but the, it's all sort of these handshake agreements, which are generally adhered to because again, reputation is really important in the art world. So if you screwed over an artist, that's going to ruin everything for you. It's just not worth it. And so usually how it starts is the dealer will invite the artist to be in usually a group, one or two group shows. If that does well, they'll do one or two solo shows. And if that does well, then they'll offer representation. And then there's a really sort of delicate negotiation. I mean, dealers will say like, we really believe in our artists and buying into the creative vision is something that's really important for dealers to do in order to be seen as a good dealer by others. So their reputation is really based on, are they promoters and supporters of a creative vision? They also have to seem like they're just not in it just for the money, even though it's understood that they're more market-based than artists, but they have to first and foremost support artists' creative vision. So one really interesting moment of negotiation happens when dealers are deciding with artists what to exhibit. And that's where you can sometimes see clashes occur because artists will sometimes be like, this is what I'm doing now. This is the next stage in my creative mm -hmm. vision. Dealers have much more contact 
with collectors. So artists being invited to these parties and stuff, but dealers are the ones that are having these day-to-day market contact with collectors. And so dealers have a much better idea of what's going to sell. So they will know if an artist is making something that's not going to sell either because it's just too far of a deviation from their creative vision, or they might view it as just an underdeveloped series or something that's hard to sell for other reasons. It's going to deteriorate quickly or something like that. And so they'll try to steer artists away from that, but they can't do it in too explicit of a way because if they do, then they're uh, intervening in the creative vision and that's seen as inappropriate. So they can kind of say things like, you know, you can do whatever you want. I'm not going to tell you what to make. I'm just going to tell you what I think will sell. And so they do that sort of delicate negotiation, but sometimes artists really push and then push comes to shove. They usually, at least on a for one time, maybe not repeatedly, but one time they'll, they will sometimes put up an exhibition that they don't expect to sell. And they do this because of their wider reputation and their long-term relationship with that artist that they think it's important to protect that idea of having a creative vision, being a supporter of a creative vision. And so, and you also see really delicate negotiations come in, in terms of how to install the exhibit because this is where you see a space of like competing competing claims to expertise really, where artists are part of the meaning of the artwork is communicated and how I arrange the exhibitions, both what I choose from the series and how I place them with respect to each other and how densely I place them really matters. And so they have that legitimate claim to uh, over the exhibition space, but dealers are the ones who have to hang the exhibition space every two months with different work. And so they know what works in that space and how collectors are going to respond to the space. So a really common thing is artists just wanting to put too many pieces in the space and dealers being like, no, it's, it's too cluttered. This isn't going to look good. This isn't going to, people aren't going to respond well to this. And so that's another really delicate negotiation over sort of control of the space. And that can often happen. Artists have really different feelings about this. Some artists don't care at all about how the space is hung. And they're like, this is, once it leaves the studio, don't care. Others are much more controlling about this phase of it and say that this is a really essential part of communicating the meaning. And we'll do like these uh, really like detailed mock-ups of the exhibition space that they'll send to dealers before. And I've seen dealers like standing in front of a mock-up, you know, he thinks this is a done deal, but I'm really not happy with this. And now he's going to come in on Wednesday and I'm going to try to have to delicately steer him this way without him knowing that I'm doing that. And that's going to take like my entire day. All right, we're, we're running low on time, and I wanted to squeak uh, two questions in, yeah. so maybe just quickly. The first one is, after doing this study, what were the big insights that you walked away with? What, did, what were the big lessons that you personally learned about culture mm-hmm. and art and those topics that had your, your personal understanding evolved as a sociologist? What were they? Yeah, so I think a couple things that I'll just say pretty quickly, and I think I've touched on some of these. One was this idea that we, as sociologists look at things either in terms of like the genre level, these are big genres of things, or at this individual level of these, this is individual artworks that we're looking at. And I think something that's a level of analysis that's really been overlooked is the body of work. So Hmm. across creative fields, 
people within these creative fields are not judging discrete artworks or just in terms of how these discrete artworks fit into larger genres, but they're judging at the level of the body of work. And they're trying to understand how did this come from the previous things that artists made and how does this predict or gesture towards what is going to be made in the future. And that's a really central orienting framework for their evaluation. And it's also really important for creators to they, I don't think, can make things without thinking about how it fits into their body of work. And we can see the, the idea of the body of work in almost any creative industry. So that's like the, I think, a really big empirical takeaway. Another thing is I think it really gave me a different framework for how I think judgment should be analyzed. And I think in culture more broadly, I would like to move towards a way of thinking about creativity in terms of aesthetic judgment. And so I think I would like to move us as a discipline towards more of looking at judgment in the process of production. I think we often look at judgment in terms of selection after the product has been made, but looking at how judgments unfold during the process, looking at not just discrete moments of judgment, but how judgments are in a sequence of judgment. So Artists don't make just one judgment in the production of their work. They make many judgments that are each like sort of in a chain sequence. And then taking a relational approach and looking at how multiple people's judgments on the same objects are all simultaneously shaping each other. Awesome. One more question. Now you're on the other side of a huge ethnography in the art world. I'm sure somewhere out there, there's another doctoral student who's looking to jump into similar waters. What do you wish you knew before this study that you figured out after? On a personal pragmatic level, as a young researcher entering this field, jumping into this type of research space, are there any tips that you'd give the younger you or someone who's in similar shoes? I don't know if I have any words of wisdom around this. I just think it's a kind of difficult thing I realized I needed to negotiate. My first ethnography of um, an erotic arts club was this group meets at this time every week in this place. So it wasn't like I was capturing every single moment of that interaction, but I felt like I was at least in the right place in the right time. And then I moved to an ethnography of a massive market in a massive city in what was actually part of like a global field or a, yeah, a globalized field. And that was extremely overwhelming to me because I think I started feeling similarly to I think how many of the artists in my study feel when they're trying to network in the art world, like they're never in the right place in the right time. Or even if you felt like you got something good, there was 50 other openings going on at the same time and you had to pick one of them. And did you pick the right one? And are you really capturing enough? And so that was something I sort of struggled with because especially with people situated in the art world, everyone thinks they're very special. And so they're like, well, you know, you need to capture this and this and how, and also like the way art history is, people focus on individual artists and movements. So they're like, how can you capture a feel? That's absurdity. So that was just really an overwhelming thing to me to try to negotiate. And I think I just had to be okay with what I captured at the end of the day. Okay, it's not, I would have captured different things if I had been in different places. I think I would have come to the same overarching, I would have had different anecdotes, I guess. I would have had different quotes. I think I would have come to the same overarching point and maybe some of them would be snazzier than the ones I got, but you just have to be okay with what you saw and more importantly, be okay with what you didn't see, I think. 
Hannah Wool, author of Bound by Creativity. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Thank you to Hannah Wall from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her book is Bound by Creativity, How Contemporary Art is Created and Judged with the University of Chicago Press. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast, and on Twitter, at SochAnnex. The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.org. The production head at the Queen's Podcast Lab is Anthony Borelli. Music is by Lena Orsa. On behalf of my co-host, Ryan Sperry, I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.